Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Howdy everybody, CJ here, and welcome to episode 254 of the Dangerous History Podcast. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Dave Benner, who is the author of the recently published biography of Thomas Paine, titled Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Radicalism. And Dave is a cool guy. He and I have been internet and social media friends for a bunch of years. He's been around a while in kind of the Ron Paulian, Misesian, uh, libertarian milieu for a while. So it was nice to finally talk to him in real time and to talk to him about the book, which is really an impressive piece of work. But before I turn it over to my conversation with Dave, I do have a shout out to give for a very recent contributor, contributed since the last episode I put out, to my still ongoing Indiegogo campaign. Yes, it is still live, and you can still kick in a one-time contribution of your choice of amount to keeping the Dangerous History podcast and me afloat. And then you'll, of course, still qualify for whatever perks you're entitled to based on the level of contribution that you make. And so, big thanks go out to Cody Bias. Thanks very much, Cody, for chipping in. And, of course, the link to the Indiegogo campaign will be in the show notes if anybody else wishes to chip in. But without any further delay, let me go ahead and turn it over to my conversation with Dave Benner about Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Radicalism. Hey, Dave, thanks for coming on the Dangerous History Podcast. CJ, thanks for having me, man. This is an awesome opportunity. Love your show and can't wait to talk about pain and maybe more. Sounds good. Sounds good. So, yeah, I'm having you on because you, I guess it was a couple months back now at this point, uh, you published a book 
And am I right that this is your second book? Yeah, this is my second book. It really is technically my third. I've written a pamphlet on the 14th Amendment, too, but that's more of a small project. But I did write Compact of the Republic, the League of States, and the Constitution, too, and that's about the decentralized genesis of the American political system and how that kind of structure and that mentality toward government has been completely eradicated. So, hmm. Yeah, sounds interesting. Well, I have to, you know, tip my hat to you that, um, you know, you have written multiple books and I still have written none. So I always have huge respect to anybody who even, you know, goes through the process of completing one book, um, let alone two and a, and a pamphlet or two and a half or however you want to call it. Um, so yeah, respect to you on that. I still have multiple books in various stages of, you know, planning and, and outlining and whatever like that, but I still, I need to, I need to get a fire under my ass to get at least one done in the next few months, I think. But anyway, well, if you're tra- congratulations. <laughs> Thanks. If you're to transcribe your shows on Woodrow Wilson or the Civil War, you could have an epic series on your hands right there. So, yeah, yeah, that's true. <laughs> I mean, my if you compile all my notes for those series, it, it's hundreds and hundreds of pages. <laughs> yeah. So um, if you don't mind, um, I'm curious. A little, can you tell us a little bit about your background and. Um, am, am I right in remembering that you've, you've got a history degree or something like yeah, that? Yeah, I, I do. I have a degree in history education. I wasn't always planning to be a teacher or um, kind of a historian at all, but that's just how my route ended up through college. I never was a professional historian. I'm an amateur historian. I have a different day job. I work for a financial advisory firm, but History's always been my burning passion, especially the antebellum period. So U.S. founding to about the Civil War, we're interested in a lot of the same time frames, I think, from your subject matter. And I stumbled into kind of libertarian theory through just randomly coming across Murray Rothbard's History of Money and Banking in the United States during a college research project. In about 2004, that led me down a rabbit hole to discovering about Harry Brown, Murray Rothbard, you know, Hans Hermann Hoppe, all these different people that I know that you've probably referenced. But um, ever since then, you know, I've been really interested in revisionist style history and the tradition of, you know, Rothbard and, and others like him that took historical narratives that had really been perverted through kind of a state based centralization lens and actually uncovering the truth about them. So um, that's where I am now. I'm very involved in like the Libertarian Party. I actually run the national Twitter account um, and things like that. So I'm really interested in the historical aspect of liberty and our tradition. I think it's a, a proud tradition. And there's a lot of great ideas that come from the American experience that we can embrace, some we can disregard, and all of it we can learn from. So. Wow, that's interesting that your libertarian origin story is unique to, you know, start with Rothbard <laughs> and, <laughs> and to start with, you know, his his stuff on uh, financial history. Um, that has got to be a first as far as all the libertarian origin stories I have heard. Usually, <laughs> Great, I'll take it, it. Yeah, yeah. Usually it starts with something, you know, more um moderate and less esoteric you know it starts with an Ayn Rand novel or it starts with seeing a I don't know a Milton Friedman clip on YouTube or something but uh yeah, yeah. and I'm a recovered neocon I was a total George Bush fanatic regurgitated you know Richard Pearl and Donald Rumsfeld talking points and you know I'm not proud of that but I it, it was a a big change from then on 
Yeah, well, congratulations on uh, almost two decades of recovery from that. It, <laughs> it takes a long time, man. Yeah. Okay, so um, this latest book that you've published is a biography of Tom Paine, Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Revolution. So what inspired you to take on this monumental task? I think I, I remember when you were on Tom Woods talking about the book a little while back, I think you said you worked on it for four years. So yeah. what about Thomas Paine uh, interested you enough to take on such a big project? Yeah, a few different things. So yeah, it's Thomas Paine, A Lifetime of Radicalism. And it's there's a few reasons why. So one is that I don't think much of good value has been written on Paine in the past few decades, actually. In fact, I think the last really good biography before mine was um, written in the 90s. So um, I thought there's a lot of uh, things that were kind of glossed over and uh, kind of downplayed in terms of Payne's life too. And none of the the biographies that are big on Payne really properly conceptualized, I think, his most radical political ideas. And that's what I wanted to focus on. Um, the other thing is because of how much influence he had, not only in the United States, the fledgling United States, but also in Britain and France. Um, he rocked the political establishments of three countries, the three most important countries in the West at that point, probably, and left his mark on all three to such an extent that even foes like John Adams, who didn't particularly like Payne, admitted it. He said begrudgingly when talking about Payne's influence on his time, he said, call it then the age of Payne. So um, th those are a few things, but also because I knew this would not just be solely a laudatory account. There are things in Payne's life that, you know, I think that he was spot on on. And I think there's things in Payne's life where we look back in hindsight and think, what was he thinking? He was an imperfect person like all of us. He realized that imperfect humanity meant imperfect government. And there's a lot of lessons to take from him. But we do live in what I thought to be, and I kind of closed out my book saying this, is in the product of his most radical ideas that were just totally unfathomable at his in his time. He was called an extremist in all the forms available in the 18th and 19th centuries, but that's what we live under now. So, yeah, and I have never read a biography of Thomas Paine um, of any sort before reading this book. So I honestly had nothing to compare it to, but um, you know, I knew like the basic bullet points of his life, you know, um, born in England to humble origins, eventually crosses the Atlantic, uh, gets involved largely as a writer, but in other capacities as well with the American Revolution, then ends up eventually going back uh, over to Europe, ends up in France and the revolution. Like I, I knew kind of like the big picture, you know, story beats of his life, but I, I knew relatively little detail um, about most of it. And so there were a lot of interesting little nuggets in the book that uh, surprised me along the way where I was just like, Oh, I didn't know that. And um, even starting with his, his humble origins in England, you know, I knew that he was born to a, a relatively kind of poor, unassuming family and, you know, was basically an autodidact when it came to his, his writing skill. Um, but I had no idea that he was raised a Quaker. That was one of those things I was like, huh, you know, um, didn't know that. And, but it kind of makes sense because even though he, um, you know, ultimately broke with that faith, 
and became to some degree an opponent of conventional religion, there still is a lot of Quaker, I think a lot of Quaker leftovers in a lot of his thinking about a lot of things. Um, would you agree with that? And how do you think his, his uh, you know, upbringing affected him? Yeah, I totally agree, CJ. And actually, you can see it throughout his writings. He makes a lot of allusions to kind of uh, the Bible and scriptures in particular. In fact, he used it for many of his arguments against monarchy, for example. So he said in common sense toward the end that, you know, he thought that God weighed in on whether this monarchy thing was a good idea because the Israelites clamored for a king and well, God gave him Saul and Saul was filled with avarice and ambition and all the, the bad things that we would kind of associate with a tyrant. And, you know, he was very familiar with how to use that language to kind of persuade people in his time against, you know, the most prevalent institution of his time. Um, also, the Quakers were very focused upon kind of a natural rights tradition, maybe more so than many of the other Protestant sects that it, were around at that time. And you can see how that influenced all of his work. So you're right. He drifted toward deism toward the end of his life. Um, but we think like historians mostly think that he had kind of come to those beliefs by about the 1780s. But nonetheless, you know, he was a fierce advocate for religious freedom. He thought that severing the state from all matters related to religion was the way to go. And he said that categorically in the rights of man. So I totally agree that that kind of colored a lot of uh, his sensibilities as he lived his life. Yeah. One place where I definitely saw the Quaker influence once, once I realized uh, that he had been raised that way was in his attitude toward hereditary monarchy and hereditary aristocracy. Like I know the the Quakers were very um, kind of radical outcasts for their time period for many of their beliefs. And one of them was that they, they kind of refused to, you know, show proper deference to, you know, aristocratic titles and things like this. And that just sort of made sense. And also just in general, that he would be comfortable being a radical, like as, as the subtitle of your book indicates, you know, that the Quakers were these kind of um, counter, it's kind of counterintuitive to us today. I think the way we think of Quakers today, if we think of them at all, but they were, they were radical rebels for their time. So anyway, he didn't go into writing right away. He had some interesting jobs um, <laughs> before he became a writer. So what were some of those jobs that he had? He did, and I'll speak to three. So he was expected as, you know, part of the artisan tradesman class to essentially take up his father's trade, which was that of a stay maker. And what a stay maker did was kind of build the structural underpinnings of women's corsets, right? Um, and he, he dabbled in that a little bit, but he eventually decided that that wasn't really for him. So the two other trades that he went into were that of a privateer and that of a tax collector, an exciseman. So as a privateer, he actually worked during the French and Indian War, as we would call it, but the Seven Years' War in Europe to loot the ships of French vessels, the nation he would later help cultivate in its young Republican stage. And he almost died in an episode, nearly saved. Uh, he was saved from that by his father who talked him out of a adventure on a vessel called the terrible commanded by captain William death. <laughs> if you can uh, chuckle at that. Wow. But, yeah, uh, that's, uh, <laughs> who, would, who would volunteer to sign up for that one? Right. So as, as a privateer, it was an ostensibly private venture that was kind of, 
funded or sanctioned by the English crown. And um, that ship got into a massacre with a French frigate called the Vengeance. It killed everyone but a handful of people in on the crew, including the captain. And Payne was talked out of it by his father, thinking this a, you know, <laughs> an unworthy adventure that uh, would be very dangerous. And Payne actually escaped an early death six other times that I describe in the book. Um, as far as being an exciseman, so after his days in a as a privateer came to a close, he became an exciseman where he spent some time in Alfred, England, and particularly a place called Lewis, England. That's where he met his second wife. Um, but Lewis was actually a hotbed of radical political activity going all the way back to the English Revolution, the mid-17th century, and the Cavaliers and the uh, parliamentarians. So um, that is where we think he discovered most of his radical political sensibilities because there's a club there called the headstrong club where you would go and talk about not only the events of the day, but also political philosophy. Um, and that's where we believe he discovered a lot of these things. So, like I said, I've never read another biography of pain before reading your book, but I do have one or two like uh, collections of his more famous writings. Um, you know, all the usual stuff you would expect, uh, Common Sense, The Crisis, um, Rights of Man, etc. And what little I did know about his life, I probably got from like the intro to one of those books, you know, where they give you like the the super miniature Cliff's Notes version of his life. And um, so, you know, I knew that as a relatively young man, he did eventually move across the pond and uh, ended up in Pennsylvania, maybe not surprisingly for a, a former Quaker. And um, another thing that I actually did know, uh, as far as details go about his life, was that he was pretty early on, after getting here, I think, I don't think he was involved with it back in England, if I remember right, but um, he got involved with some of the earliest phases of the abolitionist movement mm. in, in North America. It was, what was it, the, it was either the Philadelphia or the Pennsylvania Anti-Slavery Society, or mm. I forget the name of the organization, but yeah, I, I remember actually in the intro to the collection of his writings that they did actually mention that he was like a founding member of the first real organized, you know, abolitionist society in, in North America. And they specifically mentioned he was the only founding member of that organization who was not a Quaker. Now, they didn't they didn't then mention, you know, oh, that he had been raised Quaker um, and then left it. But um, anyway, so can you talk a little bit about like what? what he did when he got over here and his involvement with uh, abolitionism and then also how he got kind of swept up in the uh, cause of those who wanted the colonies to rebel. It totally. So he came across the sea, as you said, on account of Benjamin Franklin, he basically had the best letter of recommendation you could possibly have in his time. That, that was one written by Benjamin Franklin, probably the most uh, influential and biggest celebrity of his time. He was essentially like the Elon Musk of that day, widely respected bo on both sides of the sea. He came across with a, a general letter of recommendation for employment, and he quickly put that to use by being named the editor of the Pennsylvania Magazine. This is one of the biggest kind of Whig oriented publications of the time in North America. It was founded by a Whig people that think that kind of the mainstream media is so slanted today. 
um, need to look back a little bit because it, those publications were really partisan back then. And he joined one that was more attuned to his sensibilities. And as editor, he did partake in what was really a, an abolitionist movement in germ. He was one of the forerunners of talking about an absolute uh, abolition of all slaves in the United States, really for the first time, because as editor of that paper, he published a piece called African Slavery in America. Now, there is some debate over whether he actually wrote that piece or not, but we do know that it was really the first widely disseminated pamphlet in North America that not only condemned slavery, but called for a complete end to the slave trade in in its time. And he carried those sensibilities with him throughout the rest of his life. For instance, when the St. Domingo Rebellion and later it became known as the Haitian Revolution took place, he, as a Francophile, suddenly kind of uh, drew back from that inclination and supported these people in their uprising against the colonial, uh, the colonizers and the slavers, the French slavers. He said that essentially this is just a result of the bondage these people have been put under, and everyone has a right to rebel against this slavish condition. Um, so yeah, he was part of Philadelphia's anti-slavery uh, organization that was founded by Ben Franklin, who remained a friend of him throughout his life, too. So he was very involved in all these things, even though it's not really a widely known fact about his life. Yeah, and even though I think we would both agree that he's not, I mean, Pain is very hard to label politically, especially in our terms today. Um, you know, so he's he's definitely not a pure libertarian by any means, but he certainly was a pretty consistent proponent of the concept of natural rights uh, throughout his career, I would say. Certainly so. I mean, that is underscoring his two most famous works, The Rights of Man and Common Sense, but it runs through everything. He was a Lockean through and through. He believed that all people had a right to alter and abolish their government, and any government that stopped protecting life, liberty, and property didn't deserve to exist, essentially. Um, he was emphatic on that point, even though his opponents essentially called him the 18th century version of white supremacists. They called him a crack brain zealot for democracy. Um, that's a direct quote that I put in the book. Um, and this was when it was, he was essentially called an extremist for some of these views. And now we live under that quote unquote extremism. And it, it's kind of considered that crazy to, uh, to oppose everything else libertarians do. But yeah, he believed in, you know, complete abolition of slaves. He was a hard money warrior. That's something, again, that's not well known about him. He wrote a tract called Dissertations of Government in 1786 that is really one of the most unapologetic kind of libertarian-oriented hard money defenses of its time. Um, he believed in all sorts of things that we would cling to, though he was, I would say, in some ways, a proto-socialist too. And, we could segue into that if you wanted or, or something else. Well, maybe circle back to that uh, a little bit later, but I wanted to, to next jump into his kind of first big writing hit and probably at least as far as Americans are concerned, his still his best known piece of writing. And that is common sense. So when I used to teach us history, I used to, talk about common sense. And I would, among other things, I would tell my students that um, 
you know, common sense was the 18th century equivalent of something going viral. And I also used to tell them that common sense, I think, is one of those clear cases in history where, you know, it's impossible to measure. We don't have like scientific polling data from North American colonies in the 18th century. Unfortunately, it'd be fascinating if we did. Mm. But, um, you know, where I think any reasonable person would have to say that common sense did help move uh, the direction of history in some unmeasurable but, you know, definite way. So what can you tell us about the origin of common sense and the influence of common sense, the impact of it? Yes, certainly. So during his tenure as editor of that publication I talked about earlier, he would drop kind of some satirical and humorous pieces that clearly kind of implied support for the Patriot cause and opposition to Tories, right, that were kind of driving the imperial crisis. But he decided to sit down and write a full tract in defense of the idea of complete political autonomy, of secession, of independence in late 1775. He originally wanted to call it plain truth. The famous patriot Dr. Benjamin Rush talked him into calling it common sense. And you were right on the mark when it said, when you said it was essentially that generation's version of a viral thing because it really was, but it wasn't just its popularity. It's also who it targeted because before this point, um, people thought, you know, the uprising in Massachusetts and these crazy colonial rebels kind of nullifying the stamp act where it might've been just some weird um, cause weird movement that would just go down as some obscure kind of short-term act. But really um, at the time, a lot of people, that were participating in these arguments for and against kind of the British parliament and the King were kind of confined to an American aristocracy that had a very long and wide knowledge of kind of English constitutional history. And, um, you know, the Magna Carta, the English civil wars, all these precepts and uh, antecedents that they pointed to, to say that the British were in violation of, well, pain, geniusly boiled these arguments down into a kind of digestible format that was totally just sucked in by the working class people of his time in a way that they could understand. It used a form of text called vulgarity, and that's not to mean vulgarity as it's profane, but really the kind of language that like construction workers would use or you would use with your friends. It was written in a way that everyone could understand it. He also uh, made sure that it was, I'm sorry, he made sure that it, it it didn't, the publishers didn't charge too much for it. And at one point, he even relinquished all of his copyrights for it to ensure a broader dissemination. Um, at one point, he actually claimed to have sold 500,000 copies of it. I don't think that's true. You're right that it's really hard to get an exact count. And we know that, you know, possibly hundreds of thousands of copies were sold. Um, but it, it certainly was basically the most widely read thing other than the Bible at the time. And it really, I think, was integral into getting the common man behind this cause, which was an extremist cause to a lot of people. Yeah. And common sense, as most people know, who are at all knowledgeable about American history, um, makes a variety of different arguments in favor of the colonies separating from Britain. but the kind of biggest, I think, thrust of it and the most um, impactful part 
is the way with which the way that he goes after the monarchy itself. And, you know, again, hearkening back to my days teaching U.S. history, the way I used to tell it to my students is that the monarchy was still sacred in the eyes of many North Americans, even those who were very, very uh, pissed off at the British government and, you know, all the taxes and the crackdowns, uh, the coercive acts and things like that. But many of them still had that reverence for the king and they sort of had that attitude of, well, it's all those scumbag politicians in parliament, the king, you know, he's a decent guy still. He's just, he has bad advisors. He's not getting good information, right? Kind of the classic sort of Jafar uh, story, you know, the king's a decent guy, but it's his advisors and whatever that are uh, given a misinformation, as we would say today. And that, you know, this is in some ways epitomized by the olive branch petition, right? This last <laughs> chance of like, oh, your majesty, please, you know, intervene to make peace between us and parliament. and that pain, the way I used to say it to my students, is I would say in our kind of terminology today, we would say that pain was desacralizing uh, the monarchy in a lot of ways, like really just going at it and pointing it out. Something that we libertarians like to do today, which is to call things what they are, right? To call taxation theft. And so he calls the king the principal ruffian and chief among plunderers and all these things that were like, just, you know, made people clutch their pearls to say it about the King back then. And um, I know you're a long time listener to my show. I don't know if you remember uh, years ago when I did my episode on the Norman conquest of England, I made the title of that episode, principal ruffian and chief among, among plunderers um, <laughs> inspired by his, you know, all of his references to the British monarchy going back uh, to William, the conqueror himself. But Anyway, um, yeah, I definitely, you know, agree that a huge part of the, the impact of Payne's writing was the fact that he wrote in this very straightforward, down-to-earth style. Because the typical 18th century English style is very wordy and flowery and like super long sentences that today you'd get, you know, red ink on your paper if you submitted it for uh, run-on sentences and things. And by comparison, his writing is much more direct and punchy and uh, certainly a lot easier to read than most other 18th century uh, English writings of any sort that you're likely to come across. Yeah, totally agree. Uh, you mentioned many of the things he called the king. He also called him the pharaoh of England and the royal brute of Great Britain. And you're totally right about some people's outlook being that, well, the king should just intervene and, you know, rid us of all these, you know, parliamentary edicts and and things like that. But he essentially said that, no, monarchy itself is illegitimate, too, um, where Jefferson in his 1774, a summary rights of the of a summary view of the rights of British America. He basically said that, well, the common thing uniting the British Empire is the king. And it's actually kind of a legitimate feature of that system. But all the, the legislatures are local, including the North American ones. Well, Payne, even more radically than Jefferson, who in many ways was a radical, he said that, no, actually, the British royal line is derived from a bastard foreigner who gained power only through military prowess, that being William the Conqueror, who you alluded to right there, and through the successful Norman invasion in 1066. And he said that 
a free people can withdraw from such an illegitimate government. This was as radical as it gets, especially in the time when, as you say, the Olive Branch petition was passed. There's a lot of people that sought reconciliation. But Payne, like Patrick Henry, was saying the war's already begun. They've already brought it to Massachusetts. And we um, we cannot let posterity be enslaved by this kind of tyrannical system. Yeah, that was a point that really struck me. Um, it's been a few years since the last time I read Common Sense. But in reading your book, obviously, there's you know a lot of quotations from it and things. And it really struck me in a way that it hadn't before on prior readings of common sense, how much he really um, kind of pushed that idea of we can't pass the buck to our descendants to, you know, have to potentially rebel in an even more disadvantageous situation or, you know, to, to kind of uh, bequeath our posterity into oppression and that we've got to kind of be the ones to take the stand now. And I'm trying to remember, I think it's in the crisis where he also uh, makes some similar statements where he's like, look, it's better for us to take this on ourselves now and take a stand rather than, you know, throwing it onto our, our descendants. And it really made me think about, I guess in, in part, it's because I've got kids of my own who are now teenagers and in part because of all the insanity of the past few years that it's really like made me angry and, you know, kind of motivated me to do what I can um, to, at least for my own little part, try to avoid passing on uh, the buck of, of oppression if I can um, to my kids and potential future grandkids. Totally. I mean, he said in the crisis one, uh, tyranny like hell is not easily conquered yet. We have this consolation wish with us that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the the triumph. He also said, I prefer peace, but if trouble may come, let it come in my time so that my children can have peace. And I think that's what you were referring to. And he was really speaking to the, to the entire generation. He actually didn't have any children. He almost had one, but it died in childbirth along with his first wife. But he was saying that, you know, we have to stop these encroachments now. Otherwise, all of our children will be enslaved to the same system. So absolutely. Yeah. And you know, I haven't by any means read anywhere near all of Payne's uh, writings. I know that you basically did for this book, but, um, you know, I've read most of the well-known ones. And out of what I have read of Payne's, my favorite is The Crisis. I, I like that even better than uh, Common Sense. And one thing I did not, either I, I never knew or if I knew it before, I forgot it. And your book reminded me one or the other. Um, about the origin of the crisis was that Washington basically kind of commissioned it, that Washington himself kind of nudged Payne to write, you know, a propaganda piece essentially um, <laughs> during, you know, one of the darkest phases of the War of Independence when things were going terribly uh, for the American side. And so, yeah, what, what can you say about uh, the, the origins of the crisis and, you know, anything we can hypothesize about uh, as far as like the impact of the crisis. Yeah, sure. So Payne had decided to put his money where his mouth was soon after publishing common sense, he entered the continental army and he had intended for all the proceeds from common sense to just fund mittens and clothing for the continental army. Of course it became a smash hit. 
Um, but he joined the Continental Army. He was under Nathaniel Green, famous Continental General, very overshadowed figure, even for how great of a commander he was. Um, but he didn't really he didn't really fit in as a as a typical uh, infantryman. He did carry a musket t- a musket, and he was kind of almost captured several times during some of the most trying periods of the war. I know you talked about this in your revolutionary series, but he was part of kind of the escape from Fort Lee and Fort Washington. Um, but he eventually took a position as aide de camp to Nathaniel Green, but it was known that he wasn't an efficient soldier. So indeed he met Washington, befriended the man. Washington had read common sense as did Charles Lee. Both of them were very impressed by common sense. And yeah, George Washington put him to work as the Continental Army's chief propagandist. And that's where the crisis began. He took a lot of time writing it at night. I believe the series spanned 12 essays. I could, it might be even more that went all the way up through kind of the, the end of the war. And they were propaganda pieces. They downplayed um, continental losses. They kind of upplayed continental victories. Um, but the kind of the running thread within it is that, you know, this, this fight's too important to give up on despite everything you hear from the Tory presses, you know, we're making inroads and, you know, we're wearing them down. And to the extent they were is really debatable. In fact, they definitely weren't most of the time until the French got involved. Um, but yeah, that's how it started. And so is there anything else you'd like to mention as far as the remainder of Payne's involvement in the American Revolution? I mean, I know uh, he had a role in the Silas Dean affair mm. and some other things like that. So um, I don't honestly know um, other than you know what I can recall from your book a whole lot of detail about kind of what he did in the latter part of the revolutionary era. Yeah, I will I'll point out two things. The Dean affair is really important to talk about because I call him a proto Edward Snowden. He was really America's first whistleblower in many ways because when it turned out that Silas Dean, a diplomat to France to kind of procure aid before France said, you know, officially signed on as an ally through the treaties of alliance and friendship in 1778. They kind of established a front company to funny funnel money to the United States. Well, as part of that, it turned out that Dean um, engaged in some war profiteering. And once this was exposed, Payne would not um, Payne really exposed it for the most part. Um, he had heard about it through his friend, Arthur Lee, who was part of that kind of diplomatic engagement to France, but he wrote about it and exposed the wrongdoing. And for doing this, he was actually made into something of an outcast because essentially half of the Continental Congress at the time thought this to be, you know, an incredible virtuous act on the part of republicanism for revealing wrongdoings in government. But the other half essentially said, well, he's a traitor. He's compromising our potential um, official alliance with France. Um, and if word gets out of this, it could foil our entire, um, you know, campaign for independence. Really, it was totally split on it. He ended up losing his job as secretary of the Committee on Foreign Affairs, um, even though some of like his biggest adversaries at that time eventually understood Silas Dean to be a complete charlatan and you know, someone that was certainly guilty once all the facts had really come out, including actually uh, Robert Morris, 
uh, who I know that you've talked about too. Um, so even some of the most hardcore kind of nationalist federalist types really kind of, uh, were swayed later in the favor of pain. The other thing is he was part of a, an engagement that was sent, um, with his friend, John Lawrence, very young, um, officer in the Continental Army overseas to France, where he personally befriended the king, Louis the 16th. And we're told through the histories that, um, there was a time in which Americans were struggling to gain a new loan from the king, and the king didn't particularly like the other commissioners, but took to Payne. And because of Payne, I think that he secured a two million lever um, loan, which was very significant at the time. And I believe this was 1780 or so, very integral part of the war. And that's, again, something that's almost never mentioned with Payne. So th- those were two things he was involved in. But by the war's end, he was very poor, and he kind of stooped to begging for money. He eventually went into bridge building, but I won't talk about that later unless you want to go there. Yeah, well, how does he end up back, um, I guess, initially in England uh, and then in France? I mean, it's, it's, it's very interesting that he kind of made friends with the king of France, and then later he's personally involved in the French Revolution. So what's the kind of Cliff Notes version of how he ends up uh, ultimately in France and involved in the revolution? Because it's a very uh, strange story, especially considering he didn't speak a word of of French. (laughs) Right. So in the mid 1780s, he dabbled in bridge building. He wanted to construct some of the first iron bridges that were ever built. There were ones before him, but he wanted to create one of the the biggest ones to be put in North America. He couldn't find funding for it. So he went between England and France for the next few years. And during this time, he had mixed successes with the furthest he had gotten was displaying an Iron Bridge prototype um, near a pub in, in England for a time. But he, and he had totally decided that he wanted to retire from politics at this point. He thought essentially his job had ended. Um, America was free from its um, the, the Georgian yoke of the monarchy. And, uh, he would just put his pursuits to entrepreneurialism. But, you know, once the first events of the French Revolution started to spread, he couldn't ignore this because he believed that some of them, like the, um, the tennis court oath and the storming of the Bastille were natural extensions of kind of what the Americans had experienced. He thought that all people, you know, deserved the ability to revolt from monarchy and it's the slavish system that featured it. Now, the the thing that drew him most into it, though, was the writings of Edmund Burke. Now, he was a friend of Burke before Burke wrote his Reflections on the Revolution in France, which was an opposition piece to the French Revolution. Burke had said this kind of compromised all stability within that system. It was bloody. Um, it was erratic. It would lead to a military dictatorship. He was right about the last part, by the way. Um, and for, and Payne could not take this. How could a man who he had befriended, who had been such a friend to the American revolutionaries, come out and say that uh, our French brethren don't deserve the same, the same gifts of independence and, you know, a rebellion from monarchy. So that's what caused him to write the rights of man. And I'm not sure that he knew how popular it would get, but it would get more popular, both volumes than common sense. In fact, the second volume, the rights of man, um, sold over a million copies in its time. It's the seminal classical liberal treatise, most seminal one ever written in my mind. And that's actually what drew him to France kind of permanently for a time, because uh, 
He was charged for seditious libel for calling for the overthrow of the English monarchy within it. And the government of England at the time, ran by uh, William Pitt the Younger, embarked in a massive censorship campaign to charge people that had spread such things. And Payne was the main target. But he had been able to uh, kind of abscond from England in time to avoid being put on actual trial. He was actually tried in absentia for this and sentenced to uh, execution. So if he ever would have gone back to his native England, he would have been arrested and executed. And that's how he went to France, where he was an immediate celebrity. The Rights of Man was widely read by some of the most radical revolutionaries there. And uh, he, it even gave him the opportunity, like you said, without speaking a lick of French, to represent the region of Calais in the provisional Republican government. Yeah. And then the French Revolution ultimately, like most revolutions, you know, goes in a ever increasingly radical direction. And whereas Payne is, you know, one of the radical revolutionaries, perhaps in the earlier stages of it, um, before long, he's a, a moderate and the you know, the crazy Jacobins are kind of taking the initiative. And so, yeah, he um, actually opposed the execution of the king, which the Jacobins were all about. And maybe it makes sense if he had already kind of been friendly with the king in years gone by that, you know, he wouldn't see the king as a necessarily a horrible individual, that he, he would be in favor of abolishing the monarchy as an institution, but, you know, have no, no real desire to execute the king. Totally. That's exactly how he saw it, because his qualm wasn't with the king himself. In fact, as you alluded to, he thought Louis XVI was a relatively just king, actually, and he had supported the American revolutionaries and, in fact, putting his country into great debt to do so. But he thought that the problem with monarchy was systemic. It was essentially a way to bind all future generations to a political system they didn't have any part in in creating. Um, so yes, I think that the, the point in which that really endangered him and his livelihood and his ability to make kind of any big influence in the French Revolution was his opposition to the execution of the king. Um, whereas Robespierre famously said, um, the, the country, the king must die for the, so that the nation might live. Payne actually pleaded on, on the floor through an interpreter to save the king's life because he thought that well, under a Republican system, let's show the world that we're not the same brutish, um, iron-fisted, strong-armed people that kind of compose the the English system of oppression. Uh, we can send him to exile, maybe even in America, where he can live out his days without any political power whatsoever, and uh, we'll still be rid of him here. But that wasn't acceptable. The Jacobins won out on that. And we know for a fact that he was targeted by Robespierre after that. He was actually put in prison during, in Luxembourg prison during the reign of terror, where he spent eight months languishing and nearly died there because he passed out with a very serious fever in which many of his kind of peers thought he would die. But he escaped execution too by a jailer's mistake. Uh, jailers would put X's on the doors of uh, kind of prisoners who they plan to execute the next day. And when one of them was making their rounds one time, the X was placed for whatever reason on the wrong side of Payne's door. And Payne says this was because the door happened to be open at the time to get a draft in into the room. But uh, that allowed him to escape se- the, the critical weeks of that 
that kind of took the lives of the the Jacobins. It was called the Thermidorian reaction and allowed him to escape when James Monroe finally pressed his case that he was an American citizen and deserved to be released because Monroe's predecessor, who served as the the minister to France, uh, Governor Morris, not only didn't try to press his case for this, but almost seemed to revel in the fact that Payne would be punished. Yeah, well, Morris, uh, if memory serves, he was a Federalist, right? Hard about the most hardcore Federalist imaginable. Yeah, yes. yeah. So that that would have been while while Adams was still the president. So um, Washington. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So was still president. Oh, oh, okay, that far back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Messing up my uh, my timeline in my head. Yeah. So that that was another detail, by the way, that I had no clue about until I read your book. Was that it was uh, James Monroe who was instrumental in getting Payne out. You know, I, I kind of never really knew the details of him getting out of out of prison in France. I knew he was in prison. He, you know, just kind of by luck didn't get executed. But I never I never realized it was James Monroe. That's an interesting connection. So he gets out of prison, but then he's still in France for quite a while, though, right before he moves back to the United States, the United States, it would have been over a decade, right? Yeah, he was for about yeah about six more years. Actually, he was restored to being a representative. He kind of oversaw a more conservative period in the French Revolution where the Thermidorians took power. Um, at first, he was he was very happy at the trajectory of where the re- revolution had gone. He thought it was on its way to recovery after kind of the Jacobins had fallen. But soon after, uh, a series of military dictatorships overthrew the government. The first was by a few of the directors who were the executives under the Constitution of the Year 3, or sometimes it's called the Constitution of 1795, but later by Napoleon, when Napoleon took power and created the first consulate under the the, 18, the coup of 18 Brumaire. And him and Napoleon actually shared a friendship for a time. Napoleon famously said not only did he sleep with a copy of the rights of man under his pillow, but also that a golden statue should be built in Payne's likeness in every city in the world. <laughs> so he was enamored by Payne and actually entertained Payne's plans for a military invasion of England. Um, Napoleon had thought about this several times and Payne kind of drew up a very radical plan that called for swift moving boats. Um, unlike ships of the line, they called them at the time, which would invade England, establish a, a French based Republic. And, um, for whatever reason, all we know is when Napoleon dragged him in front of his military attendants and he asked Payne to describe the plan, Payne said, for reasons we do not know, and I, I really wish I could know this. This is like the one thing I really wish I could know if I had the gift of it, is during that kind of liaison, that meeting, he just said all of a sudden, I don't know if this invasion will work. I think we have to have a peace with England instead. And from that point forward, he became total persona non grata to Napoleon. And once Napoleon had kind of consummated his uh, power and kind of authoritarianism in the country, Payne called him the completest charlatan that ever lived. So, yeah, well, I mean, that speaks well of uh, Payne that he he was being guided by principle, you know, that he thought um, an autocratic ruler whether it's, you know, King George or whether it's uh, Napoleon as emperor or whatever um, is an illegitimate form of government. And, you know, generally he was, uh, Payne was an anti-authoritarian. So yeah, that, 
his whole relationship with Napoleon was another thing I was clueless about uh, before looking at your book. And another thing kind of related to Napoleon in a different way is that I learned for the first time from your book is that um, in a way, once Payne came back to the United States and uh, you know, you can mention a little bit about the circumstances of that if you want to, but one, one of the things that uh, surprised me to learn was that Payne, I guess you could say, had a significant influence on Jefferson's strategy of how to go about purchasing the Louisiana Territory, which originally Jefferson was just primarily interested in the city of New Orleans itself. So can you tell us a little bit about kind of how Payne gets back to the U.S. and then just in, in general, too, I had not realized before reading your book the extent of the relationship between Payne and Jefferson. Um, I knew they, you know, were friends and clearly had a lot of overlap in their ideologies, but um, I hadn't realized quite the extent uh, of the friendship there. So anyway, all all that stuff, uh, take a stab at whatever mixture of that you want to. Yeah, um, they had remained friends essentially through life. In fact, he was probably among Payne's best friends that lasted longest. Uh, uh, his his relationship with Washington came to a close because he believed Washington was complicit in keeping him in prison for political reasons and not pressing for his release quick enough. But like like you say, Jefferson was a close friend, and Jefferson was one of the major reasons Payne decided to come back. In fact, I think he he wanted to come back several times. But really, the risk of it was too high because of the English ships that had been patrolling and could have captured him trying to come back. But in 1802, he finally comes back. He was totally rejuvenated in his interest in American politics by the ascension of Jefferson and what Jefferson and some others called the Revolution of 1800, where the Federalists were totally ousted from power. It was a very close uh, presidential race, of course, as we know, but Jefferson eventually ends up winning on one of the House ballots, becomes president, and um, Payne is just totally rejuvenated by Jefferson's platform. Um, when it comes to Louisiana, indeed, Jefferson had only wanted to initially just purchase New Orleans, viewing it as a critical kind of port, and it really was in North America. Um, the opportunity came to his attention that while Napoleon is going to offer this this entire thing, and Payne was one of the people telling Jefferson in his letter that you have to act quickly on this because um, you know Napoleon could be erratic at times; he might renege on it. Of course, the real deal was mostly consummated by uh, Robert Livingston and James Monroe, who we mentioned earlier. But Payne was a big advocate for it. He thought it was a good idea for the United States, and uh, it played a small role, but not a huge role in it. But we know he was a big, a big fan of it, and wrote to Jefferson to tell him that. Um, of course, when he came back too, he was a pariah, <laughs> totally for his religious beliefs as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was something I definitely wanted to ask you about. Because I hadn't, there's another thing that I had just never really realized or known about Payne was, you know, I knew that his views on religion were controversial at the time, but I had not realized quite the extent to which they made him so hated by so many people in the U.S. in the early 19th century. So one thing I was wondering as I was reading those sections about, you know, towards the latter years of his life um, when he was such a pariah, do you think that maybe 
just as a, I don't know, a tactical or practical matter that maybe paying for his own well-being, obviously he, you know, um, couldn't, couldn't help himself, I guess, but maybe it would have been better for his own well-being to have just sort of like advocated for separation of church and state, individual religious, you know, freedom and freedom of conscience, and just stopped there rather than, um, <laughs> you know, going beyond that to writing all these things, going after religion and religious beliefs and dogma themselves. The answer is an emphatic yes. <laughs> In fact, but he couldn't help himself. Payne was the kind of guy that, at whatever the cost of his reputation, his well-being, even his potential to live another day, he would see, he would say the truth as he saw it. So, um, the Age of Reason was part of what was originally planned to be a three-volume series. He wrote the first volume very shortly before he got arrested during the French Revolution, but he had basically written a deistic treatise and. Um, deism was kind of characterized in those times as someone that believed in a singular creator, but a clockmaker creator, not one that intervened on the world in the natural world. So he believed that nature and God's might could, could be seen in nature, but he didn't believe in any of the miraculous aspects of organized religion. Um, any of the prophecies, many of his kind of tropes in the book are very influential among the modern atheist movement today. He would say that the Bible is filled with contradictions. Um, parts were written much long later than they were purported to um you know these prophecies are essentially hallucinations and there's many falsities in it but like you said he he did believe in utter religious freedom he would have told he he said it straight up in the age of reason that well my views aren't to be taken to mean that i don't believe anyone should have the right to their own their own views, but he said he has to be truthful to himself. He said, I believe in one God and no more. I hope for happiness beyond this life. I believe in the equality of man, and I believe the religious duties consist in doing justice, loving mercy, and endeavoring to make our fellow creatures happy. But this was in the midst of a second great awakening, CJ, when, you know, the Protestant revival movement was as big as it had really ever been. So, uh, people, so this lost him a lot of friends. Benjamin Rush, the guy that helped him write common sense or kind of steered him in the direction of it, would not see him anymore. Uh, Samuel Adams wrote him a scathing letter that said, well, who do you think you are to try to de-Christianize America? Um, all these things really uh, lost him a lot of friends. Um, he did have friends until the end, but uh, a lot of people thought that, you know, this guy can't be redeemed now. Yeah, the exchange of letters between Payne and Sam Adams, I found particularly interesting. That was yet another thing I was just completely, you know, clueless about um, before I read it in your book. And yeah, it, it seems like there was a generational thing to some extent where kind of the older generation uh, amongst the founding fathers were more likely to be more, you know, conventionally religious. And then the younger ones among them were more likely to be maybe closeted, but still some sort of deists. I mean, I know that that open public deists were relatively rare, but, you know, lots of people, myself included, suspect that um, a fair number of our founding fathers probably were uh, deists, you know, in their own, in their own uh, personal belief, even if they publicly didn't say so. And, you know, maybe even still went to a church regularly, but, you know, one thinks of Ben Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, 
James Madison, a few others. I think there's a fair amount of uh, pretty, you know, suggestive evidence that those guys were probably deists in their hearts. Ethan Allen expressly said he was Benjamin Franklin said he was in his autobiography and Jefferson essentially said, I'm a a Christian in a sect all myself, as far as I'm concerned. And um, I think that some of them, even if they were not kind of uh, DS per se, all embraced a lot of kind of DS precepts. Uh, I don't know that Jefferson embraced them all because you can find times in Jefferson's life for, for instance, he prayed. We know when his, his wife died, he prayed and deists actually wouldn't do that because they don't believe that God intervenes in the natural world. But nonetheless, you're right. I think some of these people adopt so, adopted some of the precepts. Um, I think it's a little overblown when people say like, oh, the founding generation was predominantly deist, though. I think that's totally wrong. I think almost all of it was some form of Protestant. But you're right. Some of those ideas might have kind of been more closeted than than we know. Yeah. And, you know, as you were kind of hinting at with what you just said about Jefferson, there's also the possibility that people's beliefs change over the course of their life. And, you know, maybe they, they kind of go back and forth over what exactly they believe. But, you know, as you mentioned in the book, there's the, the famous um, Thomas Jeffersonized version of the Bible, where he basically took, took the Bible and cut out like all of the, the supernatural uh, things and miracles and whatnot. And um, I forget what was the, he titled it something like the life and teachings of Jesus of Nazareth or something like this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Basically saying, yeah, you know, most of the, the morals in here are pretty good and uh, all that, but uh, you know, maybe, maybe he didn't quite buy all the, the miracles and things, but um, yeah. So Payne had a pretty rough uh, latter years of his life for the most part. Another thing that I had no idea at all about until I read it in your book was that, Technically, uh, he had an assassination attempt made on his life. <laughs> what was it like a, a a dispute with a with a workman or something? And the guy got drunk and took a shot at pain. What was the the details there? Yeah, I'm so glad you brought this up. Another really oddball part of his life. But yeah, he had a minor dispute over property with a former tenant that had been renting his property during his time in France named Christopher Derrick. And I think it was 1805 on Christmas Day. Um, well, but prior to that, Derek had engaged in a rum drinking binge <laughs> and he snuck up to Payne's house that still stands today. By the way, you can visit it's a museum in New Rochelle, New York. And he took a shot with his musket at Payne from the window. And the, the shot, obviously, it didn't hit Payne. And here's the, the craziest part of this story, CJ, that I think is that when Payne found out about this and they caught this guy, tracked him down and arrested him. Payne actually didn't want to press charges on him because at that point, you know, his reputation had already suffered so much. So it's most biographers think that he didn't want to ruffle kind of community feathers by um, (laughs) having this guy go through a criminal trial for murder. But it's crazy to think about that today, but that's how it happened. Yeah. It almost makes me think of the, you know, supposed official story anyway, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald, before he went and, uh, you know, tried to assassinate John F. Kennedy, allegedly, that he had previously tried to assassinate. I can't remember the guy's name. He was a retired general who was like a super hardcore right winger, cold warrior type guy who had um, either retired or been fired from being a general and then had become like an outspoken, you know, hardcore anti-communist in the early 60s. And that supposedly 
Oswald took a shot or two at him when the general was like home in his kitchen or whatever. Um, Oswald supposedly shot at him from not that far away uh, through his window and completely missed with every shot. Yeah. Edwin um, Walker. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Yeah. You got a be- better memory than I do. Yeah. 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 So anyway, that's actually what kind of popped up in my head when I was reading about this guy taking a shot and missing uh, pain, although at least pains would be assassin had the excuse of he was drunk. Um, i still haven't been able to figure out how exactly we're supposed to believe that Oswald uh, missed the general, but then however many weeks or months later, supposedly uh, made shots on the president at a greater distance from an angle at a moving target, blah, 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 with, with that crappy rifle and scope. But anyway, that is a whole, uh, a whole nother rabbit hole to go down right there. Okay. So, um, pain dies and, um, I don't know. What, what would you, what would you say about his death? Uh, uh do I, I remember right that the only thing he specified on his tombstone was author of common sense and then his name and his, his dates. Um, actually I don't recall what was to be on his tombstone to be honest with you, but there is a funny uh, kind of twist to this is that, he was dug up shortly after his burial by an English radical named William Cobbett. Um, Cobbett was kind of a opponent, a political opponent of Payne that eventually got enamored with him and started to become obsessed with his works and his writings. But he dug him up with the goal of bringing him back to his native in- England and giving him a proper burial there. Um, now, there's a lot of disputes on this and kind of conjecture about how exactly this turned out, but parts of Payne's body had kind of been in transit in various chests and in the property of kind of descendants of this person to the point that we don't know what happened to him anymore. So we don't know where his resting place is, but we know that Cobbett dug him up. Um, <laughs> just an interesting thing about him. I would say that at his, toward his death, he did have several close friends and people kind of play this up that he was friendless and poor, but he had kind of lived meagerly so that he could give the Bonavie children a trust. And the Bonavies were a family that he'd stayed with in France. When he came back to the United States, he brought Bonavie's wife over and their children to kind of give them a better future. But he left them a significant trust. And one of the Bonavie children became a general that fought in the Civil War. And both of them had, you know, pretty, pretty good lives, actually. Um, so I think that's to his credit. Also, his funeral took place, I believe, the day after he died, and it wasn't well publicized. And that really limited the number of people that could attend. I think that it if it was publicized, despite kind of the animosities, toward him that more people would have showed up. But I think there's only six people at his funeral. Yeah. The whole story about his body, you know, being uh, exhumed and all that stuff that, that was just bizarre. Um, I had no, no clue about that and um, much less bizarre, but also something that I found kind of interesting that, you know, I had no idea about was that pain when he realized he was starting to get, you know, towards the end of his life, he actually kind of like applied to be buried in a, a Quaker uh, graveyard, right? <laughs> he did. It surprised me a little bit that he did, but he did apply to it. And the local society of friends that considered this turned him down for it. And I think it made him distraught. Um, but yeah, he did it. That surprises me actually a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I guess um, 
you know, when you're looking the end in, in the face like that, especially a guy like him who would escape death kind of narrowly multiple times, maybe he started to go, well, maybe, uh, maybe I'll cover my ass just in case those Quakers are right about things. Um, but I, I did find it amusing that both that he applied and that they turned him down. But yeah, um, it, I don't think it was because like it was uh, he was having second thoughts about about God. In fact, we know several preachers and ministers came to him on his deathbed and tried to convert him at the very end, which you might remember from the book, too. And he soundly denied <laughs> um, wanting to go through that at all. I think it was more um, just kind of the tradition of his family trying to uphold that. But. Okay, yeah, and I, I don't remember were were any of the guys who any of the pastors or whatever who tried to convert him at the end were any of them Quaker or were they all like you know Congregationalists and uh, Methodists and whatever like that? I'm pretty sure one was Methodist and one was Presbyterian, but I could be wrong on that. I'd have to oh. go back and check. But okay, um, yeah, I couldn't remember either. But um, okay, so you know, a fair amount of Payne's work and ideas they seem pretty libertarian, especially his ideas of natural rights, all that sort of thing. Um, in addition, one thing I was thinking of as I was reading the book is that in some ways, I guess you could say that Payne could also be categorized as somewhat, at least, of a classical Republican that, um, you know, kind of small r uh, in the the kind of Renaissance tradition almost of like hearkening back to the Republican ideas of uh, Greece and Rome, and that maybe one could argue that Payne, a lot of Payne's political work would be like classical republicanism, but like dragged through enlightenment thought or something like that, or, or you know, flavored heavily with enlightenment ideas or, you know, what do you think about that? Is Is that a fair way to categorize his outlook? Yeah, I think that's actually a really good way to categorize it. I would also say that he was kind of a proto-socialist in a way, too, not because he believed in earnest that collective that property should be collectivized, like the means of production should be held by collectives. But he did call for really toward the end of Rights of Man too, the the first what would have been the first progressive income tax in Western civilization, um, an aid project for the poor and elderly and work, public works projects, which it completely fell on deaf ears. But those were those are really like big features of most socialist systems today. And none really took hold until Bismarck, you know, conquered um, Germany and established kind of his own welfare state. And I believe like the 17, uh, 1870s. Um, but Payne also called for in Agrarian Justice, a book that he wrote in France, um, really what was a proto-UBI scheme that called for a land tax to fund an annual stipend to all people living in a place that would be basically akin to what Andrew Yang had proposed. I actually, for all that I think Yang was wrong about, I think he's right to say that some of his ideas had in influence in pain. And uh, pain was not kind of a property rights absolutist in the same way you and I might be. Um, he believed kind of in the Lockean theory of property in general, but he still believed that since all property was given to mankind in the commons, that all people living still had some a minute claim of ownership to that land. So um, I, I do, I do want to quote this in saying that Payne never expected these programs to be funded with fiat printing schemes or through reckless debt, though. Both of those things he considered entirely slavish, too. So hindsight's 2020. We have about, you know, 150 years of seeing the follies of the welfare state behind us. 
they're all funded with those things today. And I'm not sure Payne would be on board today if I was to give some conjecture, but it, it's helpful to know he did propose them. Yeah, it's interesting in light of the fact that, you know, he says it's basically the very beginning of common sense that government is at best a necessary evil. But then, you know, he later goes on to advocate a lot of these what we would look upon as like big government programs. Well, um, I wanted to to ask you, was there anything as you were working on this project all those years? does anything stand out to you as like something that surprised you the most when you learned it about pain or about his, his life or his writings? Hmm. I'm trying to think I had known quite a bit about pain before I endeavored to read basically all of his writings and every biography on him. But I would say probably the most is his foray into bridge building. I had known almost nothing about that, but he really was a brilliant engineer in his own right. And I think if he would have committed like all of his time and resources to that, he would be, you know, he would have been very prominent in architecture and, you know, Jefferson, the the brilliant polymath he was complimented his works immensely. He just never had, I, I think he was never really all in on it for a significant amount of time to establish himself. So his bridge building and his ingenuity. But I, I think the most important thing about Payne is the fact that he literally didn't care about the consequences of his actions other than to speak the truth. He thought that that was like the highest value imaginable, regardless of, you know, where that would put him in life. Um, and I think it's really admirable, but it also put him in a lot of predicaments. So, yeah, I, I just kept thinking that in terms of like, the psychological big five personality traits, you know, that you can take a quiz on and be rated in that um, one of those big five personality traits is agreeableness. And I just kept thinking, yeah, pain is uh, maybe even lower on agreeableness than I am. You know, <laughs> um, it, it almost comes across as kind of just um, a bit spectrum at times for lack of a better term, where he's just going to sort of like stick to his guns um, no matter what the cost, which, as you say, you know, it's admirable, but at the same time, I don't know, um, every now and then being a little bit, uh, a little bit flexible or, or at least just picking your battles, perhaps, as I was sort of alluding to before when I was like, you know, asking you, did he really need to go after religion itself all the time? Or could he have just said, I'm for freedom of conscience and separation church and state and leave it at that? Um, but anyway, um, did you get the sense that any of Paine's kind of like fundamental, I mean, his views on, on specific issues, you know, may have changed here or there, but did you ever get the sense that any of his views over the course of his long career of writing change in any like real major fundamental way, or is it all kind of there from the beginning, maybe just elaborated and evolved a little bit more by the end? That's a really good question. No one's asked me that yet. I think they mostly remained there over time and didn't drift too far in any direction beyond what had kind of already been solidified in his mind by the 1770s. But the one thing I do think he had second thoughts on in general is the French Revolution. He had defended this as 
kind of the natural right of the people to um, kind of abolish their tyrannical government and replace it with a new one. But it, he certainly believed it got off the rails. He was utterly disenchanted by it by the end. And um, I, I think it kind of influenced the way he thought about constitutions actually too, because if many people don't know this, but Payne had some indirect influence in Pennsylvania's very radical 1776 constitution that only had a unicameral legislature and not even an executive at all. Uh, but toward the end of his life, I think he recognized that um, some of these powers with uh, kind of bicameral legislatures and diffusing the power to various uh, kind of government centers is actually kind of valuable and thwarts tyrannical impulses to some extent. In fact, he said so once the, the Thermidorians took over, he thought that the directory was a very good system and it really was until it was totally usurped by force. Um, so th- that's what I would say. Do you have a favorite piece of Thomas Paine's writing? Oh man, it's so hard to say. I, I mean, I think that the rights of man part one is, is like the nuts and bolts of what pain thought on a philosophical level. I can totally get behind. And that's, that's the, the one that I probably like the most. But like you, I mean, crisis one, it's hard not to say this piece of writing isn't like a pure work of art. Some of the most famous kind of phrases and in English are in that piece. So the crisis one's amazing. Um, Dissertations on government is kind of a a dorky libertarian one. That's great because it just champions hard money and speaks to the dangers of fiat currencies, which were destroying the the fledgling United States in the the 1780s um, and late 1770s. But uh, that's what I would say. There's a few more too. the rise and fall of the English system in, of finance was, again, kind of a hard money treatise. So those are the ones. Yeah. And I'm definitely interested uh, now to read um, dissertations on government. That was one. I don't even know if I was aware that that existed before reading your book. So now it's on my list of 10,000 things I need, I need to read. Well, what's your overall take on pain kind of stepping back from having done all this research and all this work uh, writing this book and you know having read every word the guy ever wrote at least that you know survives that we know of what's your overall take on pain as an historical figure and as an intellectual um it's a mixed bag it's good and bad if pain were in front of me today i would walk to him and shake his hand and, and congratulate him on a job well done i think he was far ahead of his time in speaking to the dangers of consolidated governmental power tyranny and kind of the elites of his day he was a populist of that time the aristocratic class just happened to be noble monarchists right now we have uh, an aristocracy that you know, wields far more power than that. But, you know, he really was ahead of his time in kind of confronting some of the most treacherous things in human history to individual liberty. Um, But, you know, some of the things, uh, you know, I don't think were good, but I do, again, have the gift of like 200 years of hindsight beyond when Payne was writing to, to see why they were so bad. Um, What I will say is love them or hate them, I think that there's things about pain that everyone, despite their political ideology, will love and others that they won't love. And I think that we all can claim 
some influence from him, regardless of kind of your political ideology. I think that I pointed out in the book that, you know, both Reagan and Obama have quoted them in presidential administrations. Libertarians often champion him um, and Democrats and Republicans champion him for different reasons sometimes. Um, but I think they're all right to an extent. And but I will say, too, is we live in the product of his most radical ideas. The three that are at the forefront is you know, the, the crazy idea at the time that we just wouldn't live under a, a monarchy at one time, which was just considered a total extremist view, um, that we would abolish slavery in the United States. Again, something that was totally unfeasible to the, to the average, uh, onlooker. And, uh, the fact that state and church would be totally separated for the most part. This was again, a dream among some, but, uh, never really realized until, you know, Payne's influence on it. Of course, he wasn't the only one kind of popularizing that. But uh, again, another extremist view. Yeah. And it's just a shame, you know, that these things about the way we live in the system that we live under that were influenced by Payne in, you know, mostly positive ways, as you've just listed, that unfortunately along eventually came one Woodrow Wilson. And he also had a giant influence on the evolution of the American system. And uh, so if we want to give pain credit for some of the positive aspects of the American system, I guess we need to just, you know, somehow shoehorn in, I can't resist um, throwing a barb at Woodrow Wilson for his horrific legacy. <laughs> Every podcast should have such a barb CJ. I'm glad you approve. Well, <laughs> uh, Dave, it's been really cool talking with you and um congratulations on on the book it's an impressive impressive accomplishment and i learned a ton reading it and i would definitely recommend it to anybody who's interested in like this entire era of history or any particular aspect of it the american revolution the french revolution uh, Payne himself how he fits into all that stuff fascinating read and very very uh deeply researched I think you had something over 700 endnotes in the book. So um, very much my hats off to you. And I recommend the book for anybody who's interested in this stuff. Yeah. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks for praising the book. It means the most to me that you of all people like the book. <laughs> and if anyone wants to pick it up, it's at davidbenner.square.site. That will allow you to buy copies. I'll sign them, personalize them, basically any way you wish, although I won't praise people like Nancy Pelosi, so don't try. <laughs> yeah, there's limits. Okay, cool. Well, <laughs> I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. And yeah, I encourage everybody to go check out the book. Okay, and I want to say thanks again to Dave for writing this book and for coming on the show. And I very much recommend it for anybody who's interested either in Thomas Paine specifically or even kind of the entire historical era that his life comprised, because his life and career tie in to a whole bunch of different historical episodes or whatever you want to call them. Everything from the American Revolution to the French Revolution to early antebellum America and multiple other topics such as late 18th, early 19th century British history. Payne's life and career connects to all of those topics and more, so it's very much worth reading if you're into any of those. And I'll just flat out say, I'm pretty sure that Dave knows more than I do about, in particular, not just Thomas Paine, but early antebellum, early Republic American history. So, of course, there will be a link in the show notes for anybody who wants to get a copy 
of Dave's book on Thomas Paine. And in addition to that, I'm delighted to say that there's at least the possibility that Dave might be attending the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, at which I'll be a speaker. Because Dave actually lives in the Nashville area, so not too far away from Camden, Tennessee. And uh, it would be great if he is able to make it. Uh, it'd be great to shake his hand and meet him in person. And the same goes for any of you who are listeners, fans of my work here at the Dangerous History Podcast. I'd love to meet you at the Self-Reliance Festival the weekend of March 25th and 26th, 2023. And I would love to have you there as many DHP listeners as possible to attend my talk there. The event is geared towards preparedness, self-reliance, homesteading, all those sorts of things. And I'm going to be speaking on the topic of the decline and fall of empires, which is obviously very relevant to present day American events. So I'll definitely put a link again in the show notes for you to get tickets to the Self-Reliance Festival in Camden, Tennessee, March 25th and 26th. And I hope to see as many of you there as possible. And by the way, if you are planning on attending, please use the link in the show notes to get your tickets. And if you do that, I get a few shekels affiliate commission for referring you at no additional cost to you. And then last thing, just a reminder that you can get my dangerous bibliography, dangerous American history bibliography of over 150 books on various aspects of U.S. history, organized by subtopic and with annotations and comments by me. You can get it for free just by signing up for my email list over at DangerousBib.com. That's the word DangerousBib.com. Thanks as always for listening. This has been another installment of the Dangerous History Podcast, hopefully helping you to learn the past, understand the present, and prepare for the future.